the GR Project. We seek to highlight Oaklanders who are impacting education. To amplify diverse voices. To engage in complex, empathy-based conversations. To connect to national issues and opportunities. We're glad you're here. Hey, Greg. Hello there, Randy. Thanks for coming back in so we could uh, record our, our intro here to episode eight, I think we're on. Uh, we are on episode eight, and we, we actually have episode nine in the in the can. Um, we're just here to, to polish up episode eight and get it out to our listeners. Awesome. So who do we have on that on the on the podcast? This yes, time? in this episode, we talk with Cliff Hong, who has been the principal of Roosevelt Middle School in the Oakland Unified School District since the 2010-2011 school year. Before that, Cliff worked as an assistant principal at Edna Brewer Middle School here in OUSD. Cliff taught middle and high school for six years in the South Bronx, Syracuse, and here in Oakland. And in 2015, he was selected to be one of a handful of executive principals in OUSD. He is an ardent advocate for public education, which he sees as being absolutely necessary for a democracy to thrive. And it was it was really fun talking with Cliff. I've known Cliff for uh, many years now working here in Oakland, and it was fun to get a chance to hear him talk about his experience working across the country in different schools and systems and how each of those different experiences, you know, he draws on those and, and brings lessons learned to his time at Roosevelt, where he's been now for, for about five, oh no, set, I think this is his seventh year now at Roosevelt. Uh, he also talks about how he and his team there are thinking about the growth of students and the performance of students and how those play together and how they uh, hold themselves accountable. He uh, and the team are working hard to put in structures and systems that support stronger relationships uh, between students and adults uh, and and how uh, personalizing learning is also a a core piece of the model moving forward. And finally, Cliff also has some some pretty powerful reflections about the importance of just building a team, uh, getting people on the bus and getting them in the right seats and and getting it going in the same direction. Absolutely. And, and so before we jump in, just a quick uh, announcement for our listeners. You know, with each episode, the, the, the listener base is growing and we're getting all sorts of positive feedback uh, around um, creating these conversations and sharing them with the community. And so we wanted to let folks know that if any of you out there are interested uh, in blogging about a given episode um, and not consistently, just something strikes you and you'd like to write down your thoughts and and share those with the GR Project audience, please know that we are more than happy to support you in doing so and we'll, we'll create space on our website to capture your thoughts and, and share them. Um, now heading into this episode, we apologize in advance for the slight echo you'll hear uh, we have our crack podcasting production staff working hard on resolving this problem for Thanks, you. Thanks, Randy. Um, it um, it it uh, it's there. It's it's listenable um, for sure. Don't miss out on on Cliff because of this. But we do we do want to acknowledge that uh, we hear it too. Thanks for understanding, and we hope that you enjoy listening to Cliff share his insights and expertise with you. Enjoy. All right, we're here with Cliff Hong principal at Oakland's Roosevelt Middle School. Cliff, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here as well. 
Don't look so terrified, man. It's gonna be okay. Thanks for. I being mean, there. you know, I'm I'm just imagining that I'm uh, that I'm on NPR or something. This is exciting. I <laughs> listen to it every day, and I'm just imagining that this is what's Randy happening here. Does look a lot like Terry Gross. I, he gets okay. Like, yeah, I do get that yeah I'll take your word Most for it. I've never seen Terry Gross. Yes. Um, but we we are really excited to, to to chat with you, and there's a there's a lot of ground to cover. So why don't we why don't we dive right in and and start with our usual first question of, of all of our guests, which is Cliff, share your Oakland origin story with us. How did you how did you come to Oakland? The origin story. Okay. Um, so I uh, let's see. I guess uh, it goes back to 1998 when I transferred. So I, I uh, grew up in Southern California and uh, went to community college and gathered up my credits and transferred to UC Berkeley. Um, actually, in high school, I uh, uh, didn't do that well. Uh, and uh, it's it's almost ironic that I'm in education now. I actually got an F in uh, US history, had to take it over in summer school, 11th grade. Uh, got an F in algebra two, had to take it over at Dibble Adult School um, uh, down the street. And uh, otherwise, I wouldn't graduate from high school. Um, so afterwards, uh, I went to community college. And yeah, I just kind of matured up after, uh, after high school and uh, uh, graduated with honors from, uh, from community college and then went to UC Berkeley, graduated with honors from, uh, from there as well. So um, that's what brought me to the Bay Area. Uh, went to law school for a year at UC Hastings um, in the city, then uh, took leave of absence and eventually dropped out. Uh, my second year of leave of absence, I uh, fell into teaching, and so I just found a, a, a teaching job in a uh, parochial school, uh, Patton Academy here in, in East Oakland. And um, yeah, I just enjoyed teaching, and I thought, oh, I, this is for me. Um, by then, I had met uh, my partner, and uh, uh, we were together, and we moved to New York City for, for a couple of years, went to upstate New York uh, for a year, came back, um, got married, and now we're here and so that's been what uh 19 years has it been that long oh my gosh yes 19 years in the bay area wow and so um you t say again when did you decide to become an educator like right when you did the patent job uh yeah yeah because that was my second year of leave of absence and you can take two years and um, I, so that was the year I had to decide whether I'm going to go back to law school and finish up or uh, or leave altogether. And so I decided to drop out. And um, and uh, uh, when I taught at Patent Academy, it was it was great. I mean, it was a different experience. Fifty students. I taught ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. Uh, about ten to twelve kids uh, per class. And um, yeah, I, it just felt like the right thing. And so I thought, oh, I'm gonna teach and uh i'm gonna see what uh, opportunities there are to, to make an impact uh, for people um in education what what made you kind of switch from independent school to public education you know i um the independent so i trust me i tried to get into public school from the beginning i went to i, I almost feel like i want to say i went to every school district from What's, uh, I went down to Fremont, the city of Fremont, all the way up to Crockett. And I went to, I feel like I went to every school district office and I, and I visited tons of schools, walked in with my resume, and I probably dropped off maybe 100 resumes to different schools, like walked in there. And Lindsay will tell you, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going, I would tell her I'm going, and I would drive to some 
far off district to try and get a job. And uh, Patton Academy was the, uh, the one school that said, you know what, we need somebody right now. And it was like the second week of school, their teacher had, had quit. And uh, I graduated from, from Cal with a poli-sci degree and they said, well, that sounds like social studies to us. And so they hired me and, and, uh, and that's why I started there. But then I immediately switched after that one year to, to go to, to public school. And I've been in public schools my whole career since then. And so, you, so you were teaching social studies? Yeah. yeah. I'm just, and what, 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 what in particular within social studies? I'm, I'm curious if U.S. history was, was one of the classes you were teaching. Uh, it was, yes. Ironically, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, it was ninth grade geography, 10th grade uh, world history, 11th grade um, European history, and 12th grade civics and, and, and government. Um, and U.S. history as well. Maybe 11th grade is U.S. history. Yeah. What, what did, what did, in light of today's current environment, what, did, yeah. what did civics, what did the civics class look like? I mean, what did it look like? Uh, I mean, granted, I, you know, mind you, I was a, a brand new teacher with no training, so my civics class looked like, hey, read chapter two, answer the questions in the back, and then. We'll talk about Sounds it a little riveting. bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, we did it. That's what we did the whole year. So, Sorry, kids. <laughs> okay, so, uh, Patton, you were there for the year, but then where, where did you teach next? So then I taught at uh, IS 216, Intermediate School 216 in the South Bronx. Um, that was, uh, yeah, so that was in 2003, and I taught there for two years. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that was the next teaching job. And keep, keep, keep connecting the dots for us. How do you go uh -huh. from there to what comes next? To, to yeah, yeah. Well, okay, right. So, so actually, like, in between, so after Patent Academy, I thought, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. And so I actually applied to um, several universities to, to get uh, my teaching credential, um, got into the Stanford STEP program, um, also, the, at that time, it was Cal State uh, Hayward and was looking at that program. Um, but around that time, I guess the governor was Gray Davis, and he had cut, uh, it was a, a bad time economically for California, and had cut um, loan forgiveness programs, I think. There's something about it where I felt like, gosh, there's a lot of money to be spending if I'm going to be in, in urban schools. By that time, I already decided I'm going to stay in urban schools. And I thought, gosh, I don't know if I want to drop $35,000 on, uh, on this uh, degree and not get any of it forgiven. Um, and so uh, I decided to teach uh, through Teach for America. And so I requested to stay in the Bay Area. Um, second choice was New York City, and that's how I got to New York. So I taught there for a couple years, and it was great. Um, and then my partner, she um, decided to go to grad school at Syracuse University in um, uh, public policy. So uh, we moved up to New York, uh, we moved up to Syracuse. I taught at Liverpool High School. So I did the same thing. I went to every school, this one literally every school uh, within like a, a, maybe a 10, 15 mile radius of, uh, of, uh, of Syracuse. And um, yeah, one school hired me. Uh, Liverpool High School, ninth grade, and uh, and I taught there social studies for a year. What's what's the mascot at uh, at Liverpool? I think they're the Warriors. It's uh, it's kind of a uh, like a Roman looking guy, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was really interesting because um, 
Liverpool up in upstate New York, uh, the population is just different from from Oakland and from New York City. And so what they do there is really interesting is the start of school kind of kickoff. They have all of the teachers and administrators um, sit in their high school stadium. So this uh, this district had one high school, maybe was it one middle school? Maybe two middle schools and, and, and a few elementary schools. So uh, so everybody's in this stadium. And so I'm there, uh, brand new. What am I like? I was like 27 at the time, young guy. So I'm looking to the left of me, looking to the right of me. And I think I was the one uh, Asian guy, Asian person. There's one African-American man. He was like a, um, a principal, I think. And then he was in uh, uh, on, on the field with the other administrators. And I thought, wow, this is this is a really different place, and it's going to be a different experience. Um, and it was great. Everybody was so friendly, and, uh, and and it was wonderful. But it definitely was a different experience. That also was the one year where um, I was able to teach in a school that was relatively well-resourced compared to the other schools that I had taught in. And so this was something where, so as a teacher, I could drop off um, uh, a couple uh, original kind of papers to be copied, and then... Um, ask him how many copies uh, I wanted. The next day it would be delivered to me. Anything I wanted, paper, um, clay. We made uh, clay islands to to talk about different uh, uh, kind of geography and whatnot. They bought me clay, and it was great, and it felt really good. It was there that I thought, oh, if I c-, and that's where I got inspired to uh, to maybe go into administration. And I thought, you know what? If I could create conditions where teachers had what they needed. Um, it could go a lot easier. And so me juxtaposing that experience with previous teaching experiences. So pretty formative. So you weren't thinking you were going to be a school administrator at Patton? Like at the the Patton? No. It was was teaching? Yeah, Yeah, I would say that, yeah, it's true. Yeah, at that time it was was just uh, thinking that I'd be a teacher um, for, I don't even know, just indefinitely. And then when you made it back to, did Oakland come after Syracuse? Right. So after Syracuse, um, I got hired by video by um, uh, Jamie Morantz, who was a uh, principal at uh, Edna Brewer Middle School here in Oakland. And so I don't know how I mean, it was probably a similar thing where I started looking at different school districts in, in the Bay Area. And uh, and Jamie had reached out to me and, and I sent her a video of me teaching. She hired me. And so I had a job coming back to, to the Bay Area. And yeah, so I taught at Edna Brewer for a couple of years. And then you were also an AP there? Then I became an assistant principal. I went to UC Berkeley's uh, Principal Leadership Institute. And uh, then I became an assistant principal at, at Brewer for a couple of years. And then my first job as, as principal is my current job still um, is at Roosevelt. And this is now year eight. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, where, tell, help listeners understand, where does that put you amongst, like, Oakland Middle School principals in terms of staying power? I think in terms of Oakland Middle Schools that serve grades 6 through 8, I believe there's 13 of them, I am now the uh, longest sitting uh, of those principals. Old man. I guess so, long in the tooth, yep. Long in the tooth. Is that what a saber tooth uh, reference? Yeah. What do you think you'd be doing? You tried law school. It clearly yeah. wasn't the right thing. Uh-huh. Do you have any sense on what you might be doing if it wasn't if it wasn't education if it wasn't teaching or administration what, like alter ego bizarro cliff what you might be up to? Well, you know, I, I tell people that once I'm done um, with education, I probably will be a short order cook at a greasy spoon diner 
um, I don't know, maybe uh, Oli's Waffles in uh, in Alameda, if they ever sell, maybe I'll buy that. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I mean, I just, I'm excited about cooking. What do you like to cook? Uh, like really easy stuff, not gourmet stuff. That's why I'm talking about like a greasy spoon. I think it's really not even the cooking. It's in contrast to the complex kind of thinking that I have to do in this job. It's um, not that, you know, being a short order cook is not complex, but it's complex in a different way and not complex in, in some ways. And for me, I want to get an order, uh, uh, make the thing, push it out, get another order, make it, push it out, and then go home. And so that just sounds sometimes on the hardest days of being a principal, that sort of life and existence sounds great to me, just in and out and then done for the day because you really don't get that uh, with this job. I'm I'm imagining you with you know a chef's hat on and a greasy apron. Yeah. And like, there's there's some sort of school event in your future. For in the meantime, in the meantime. Yeah. Some pancake like, breakfast or something. Yeah. yeah. You're you know making scrambled eggs yeah. for eighth yeah. graders or something like that. I don't. Yeah. Know. Or they're yeah. throwing eggs at you maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Like, well, yeah. School vibe here. Yeah. Yeah. But this is not the first or second or even tenth time I've talked about this gre- greasy spoon thing. And more than that, so I, I think it's a thing. Oh, I don't know. No, no, I no, I've not thought about that, but uh, but yeah, anyways, so there's that. That's, a, that's yep. not very greasy spoony at all. Yeah, keep going, Greg. Are no, they? no, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're done. Uh, do you think it's shifting back to the real yeah. podcast? Uh, yeah, do you think it's necessary for a principal to have been a teacher? Necessary, I would say 99% yes. So, like, there exists somewhere some person who could do the job well of a principal without being a teacher, but it's, like, super rare? Well, actually, 99%, that means one out of 100 people who are principals could have been a principal without having been a teacher. So I'd probably say, like, I don't know, one out of 5,000 principals probably could do it. Like, somebody who just has extremely good people skills and knows how to delegate well and can put people in place that understand instruction um, and who understand how to run a school. And this person probably would have to uh, just kind of limit their work to, to, to budgeting and, you know, just, just uh, general management of people. But, yeah, I mean, you could hold that job. Um, one out of 5,000 people could hold that job and, and probably be decent at it. But the other 4,999 people uh, who are principals, yeah, you probably should have been a, a, a teacher Um because uh, it's, it's really hard to be a teacher. It's really hard. And uh, going through a teacher prep program, um, even teaching for three, four, five, even 10 years, sometimes, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's, um, I think it's really difficult. And for someone to, to have the knowledge um, and the experience of having struggled, it's really important for, for you to viscerally feel that, that, that your body feels um, getting kicked in the butt uh, uh, or in the head, really, uh, or everywhere um, by a lesson that doesn't work or by um, students who you haven't engaged or, um, yeah, anyway, so yes, the answer is it can be done, but very rarely do I think it's going to be successful. Yeah, keep, I wonder if you can keep going there. Can To just break it down even, you were very specific, but to break it down even more specifically, what what do you think are the 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 top maybe three takeaways that you would value you know, most highly from that teacher experience as it gets leveraged into being a principal right so you just named a, 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 a mm-hmm. few examples uh, and maybe those are the examples but I'm I'm wondering if given the opportunity 
you might frame those up in in a slightly different way to mm -hmm. to, to, to give us some insight so let's see if i could reframe your question like or re, uh, uh, reiterate or rephrase it um so what are three lessons that i've taken from being a teacher that have helped me to be a uh, principal today yeah 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 that's, that's okay so let's see um there is there are multiple layers of uh of policy and um uh and bureaucracy that um uh, a teacher has to jump through to be able to get the job done whether it's uh it's federal law uh state law um you know county district and they're all uh well-meaning laws i'm sure uh, uh i'm sure the intent of, of i don't say all but most people i'm sure the intent is is to have students thrive and in the aggregate i think it makes it hard for for teachers to do their job um i'm not saying government's a bad thing government's a great thing and uh, i'm not about privatization and i'm not all about the market model and so uh, i want to say that some level of bureaucracy is important um uh and um, too much bureaucracy makes it hard for anyone to do their job. So as a teacher, um, to have to jump through hoops uh, uh, that maybe don't directly or even indirectly lead to students learning, um, not only does it make it, I remember it made me feel like, gee, I'm, I'm kind of wasting my time. Um, but it also took time away from me being a better teacher because I just didn't have as much capacity um, uh, to teach kids because I was trying to make my bulletin board look a certain way, otherwise I'd get in trouble, that sort of thing. So that's one thing is um, uh, just the, the, the layers of policy and being able to feel what that feels like as a teacher and then at the end of the, the year be told, oh, wow, you suck because look at your test scores. That's just not fair uh, uh, to the teacher. So to be able to feel that I think is very important. Um, another thing is, um, I mean, teaching is a very um, unusual um, set of, of, of skills, I guess. Uh, for you, it, it's you, and there's 30, and in some cases, there's like 34, 36 students. Uh, some teachers teach 40 students, and they're, they're 30 plus students. Uh, human beings, young people, um, who are still kind of learning social norms uh, and um, kind of learning who they are, going through um, whatever uh, identity crises that they're going through as teenagers. And your job is to manage all of that, plus whatever trauma some of the students and young people may be going through. you got to manage all that and have them learn algebra or, uh, uh, you know, the, the, how the government works and whatnot. It's really hard to manage all of those personalities day in and day out. And you have to be on because if you're not on every day, then the students will let you know and it's going to be that much harder. So to be able to feel that, uh, just the interpersonal relationships between you and the students, is, uh, is something that you just can't uh, recreate or talk about or write about in a way that, that people understand. So those are two things. And uh, what the third thing um, that I've learned as a teacher that, that, that I draw upon now is um, what else? I don't know. Maybe those two things are, are super visceral because for me, I draw upon that. And, and, and like I said before, when I decided that, oh, maybe I want to go into administration, it really was about how to set up a school so that the teacher-student relationship uh, can thrive. 
and that we can uh, create conditions where, where that's supported. And I think that sentiment comes directly from uh, at least these two things that, that I've mentioned. So you, you taught in independent, you taught in um, traditional public schools and in multiple states. Is that sort of experience, do you think, required or should be required before you become a principal? Or, or do, you, do you need to have been a teacher in, your, in, you know, in the district where you end up being a principal? Like, mm-hmm. do you think, um, like, do you have anything that, any thoughts on what those, ex- how those experiences mattered to you in your own journey? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good question. Before I get to that, now that I've explained, like, what what I took as a teacher, I'm feeling like it's not one in 5,000, maybe it's one in 10,000 people. <laughs> that could be a good principal without having been a teacher. I think you really need that experience. Anyway, so in terms of, of multiple schools, yeah, so I, I've been in five schools now in my career. Um, one independent school, uh, parochial school. Um one significantly urban school, meaning like, I don't even know what that means, significant, incredibly urban school in South Bronx, Um, one semi-well-resourced high school up north, and then uh, Edna Brewer here in Oakland is, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's an urban school, it's a slope school, it's a hill school, depending on who you talk to, and then now uh, back to Roosevelt. So five schools, all pretty different, and yeah, it's been incredibly beneficial for me to see uh, five different schools run five different ways, five different groups of kids. Um, uh, not just the way the school is run, um, even the facilities, just uh, the feng shui of how uh, uh, schools set up their cafeterias and, and the flow of the school, uh, but really being able to see different leadership styles um, of different folks uh, have been very helpful. In terms of the question of do you feel like you need to have taught in Oakland to be a successful principal in Oakland, um, I, I don't know. I'm thinking about successful principals. And so when I think about my colleagues who I consider successful, um, have they taught? Actually, I don't even know if they taught in Oakland. So I don't know. Probably when you think of them, can you be sure that they all taught? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, no, that that's for certain. Yeah, um, so so yeah, I don't know if it, it's necessary to teach in Oakland necessarily, but but uh, uh, to have an experience that's similar, an urban environment, a diverse environment, I think that is key. I mean, for sure, uh, you'd have to have been a uh, a teacher or an administrator in um, in a diverse environment. Like you're not going to come to a place as diverse as Oakland and um, not have listening skills and empathy skills. If you don't, you will get run out real fast. Like you'll know that something's wrong and you will just not be successful. So, uh, so yeah, so to be able to have that experience of, of having to, to listen and, and really empathize, I think, I think is important, essential. Listeners, I can see Randy framing <laughs> his questions. I'm, buy, I'm to, buying him time yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. now. Thank you, Greg. Um, there's just so many different threads we'd love to follow up on. I'm, I, I'm cu- of, of the five different experiences you've named, as interested as I am in some of the differences, I think I might be more interested in are there, what are the commonalities, if any, that uh-huh. you can identify across those experiences? Hmm. Commonalities. Um, I feel like uh, I can name two. 
one is uh, about the teachers. And when I think about the teachers that um, seem to be the most successful and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's loaded language, like what is success? But I'll define it for, for this answer as um, having uh, good relationships with students. Like the classroom was, was a strong, it seemed like a very strong, positive environment. And that the students seem to be producing um, great work. And when you look at the student work, like the kids are, uh, uh, seem to be improving in their writing skills uh, or whatnot. So um, similarities are that these successful teachers, I'm trying to visualize in my mind uh, uh, these folks, um, they all invested in getting to know their kids, their, their students, uh, their young people on a deeper level. Like they spent time um, at lunch, on their breaks, um, after school, on the weekends with the students, whether it's taking them on field trips or just making phone calls, getting to know their families. So it's not it's it's in contrast to maybe the the uh, the stereotypical say college professor where the students show up and the the professor far away on the on the on the stage kind of lectures and then they all kind of go their separate ways. Um, it seems like for uh, for at least K twelve that level, um, it's it's it seems like it's it's essential for for teachers to uh, to really be invested in their students to be successful. So that's that's one thing that I saw. Um, and the other thing would be around the school leaders. So I think the school leaders, uh, I've come to this conclusion now to, that to be a successful school leader, this is the, the head of school, the principal. Um, uh, I, I like to say it this way. There's, uh, there's, if you look at a spectrum and you think about, um, about people, there's systems people, people who are great with spreadsheets and everything's on time and they, uh, they love flow charts. There's uh, on one end of the spectrum systems people. On the other hand, uh, on the other end, there are um, people people or relationships people. The successful school leaders I've seen can are like right in the middle or they can traverse back and forth between uh, those two ends of the spectrum. And the, the less successful ones or um, how do I say this in a positive way? Uh, the uh, at some point to be successful ones um, or the not yet successful ones, I feel like lean heavily one way or the other. So they're good at the spreadsheets. They're good with the with with the flow charts. They don't know how to talk to people. And then the um, uh, uh, teachers will get angry. Um, uh, staff members, they'll just feel like disrespected. Then others, they're great at talking to people and they just uh, they can't they can't organize uh their papers and uh um, and their systems and so uh, that leads to frustration as well so those have been uh, a couple takeaways i'd say uh comparing all those five uh schools it's great um thanks for that so let me I, I i somehow managed to remember the other burning follow-up question that i wanted to to ask um <laughs> unless i just forget it right now so so actually no, i've got it so i think if we were to look at the conversations we've had with probably all of our guests, and if not all of them, nearly all of them, I think everyone stresses the importance of listening. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's sound, that sound right. Yeah. In in your in your role, can you give us a, a concrete sort of detailed example of how you practice that? Mm -hmm. um, at, at Roosevelt, what does it look like for you as the as the principal mm -hmm. to to listen to listen with empathy? 
I think uh, I think listening manifests in in, in several ways. Um, I know for me, uh, part of my leadership style is to make sure that I have checked in with enough uh, of the stakeholders, um, such that if a decision's made, um, I before any decisions made, I should feel that it's gonna be um, uh, there's not gonna be that much pushback. And if I feel like there's, there's going to be pushback, then there's a lot of work to be done uh, before that decision's officially made. And so there's a lot of me uh, checking in with folks, um, whether it's phone calls or visiting classrooms or uh, just uh, making appointments to, to talk with people and just kind of getting a sense of where people are at. And if I feel like a certain decision is, uh, is, is not going to work, then, um, then we leave it for another time. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I think of an example. I'll give you an example of what something that happened just this past week. So we have uh, uh, we have lunch. We serve 500 uh, about 550 students, and um, we have some work to make this uh, lunch system run smoothly and efficiently. So this is my eighth year as principal at Roosevelt, and. Um, uh, I guess this is an example and a non-example. The non-example part is this is the first year where we've engaged our cafeteria staff in trying to help problem solve um, this issue. And so um, what we did was it was myself, our two assistant principals, uh, a couple of other staff members, and four of our cafeteria staff where we got together, we bought lunch, we hung out. We talked about. Uh, we started with a with a uh, an icebreaker about you know an example of uh, 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 for each of us had to share what what middle school was like and kind of a funny thing that happened us in middle school, and then we used the design thinking process to say, hey, what are some problems we're seeing with the lunch and uh, and and let's figure this out. So um, that's an example of uh, me us trying to uh, make sure that those closest to the problem. Um, uh, are there to, to weigh in um, and to give us uh, uh, give us good information again like but at that meeting I did name and acknowledge that this meeting came way too late um, and eight years later here we are trying to you know engage everybody to, to solve uh, 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 the lunch issue so um, so yeah so non-example and example so we got a bunch of questions about we're, we're going to ask about Roosevelt, but before we get there, we're going to start a little bigger, talk a little about Oakland Unified. Okay. So, um, we've both heard of this thing called an Oakland Unified Executive Principal. Okay. Are you, you was one of those? I was. Okay. And my I, I was termed out. You're termed out. Okay. Yeah. So, not kicked out, termed all out. All right. Good clarification. <laughs> yep. So can you just tell us what what is that and what was that like mm -hmm. for you and what did that entail and why'd you do it? So uh, let's see, executive principal. I think mm, so. the 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 concept of the executive principal was launched two years ago, maybe about yeah, about two years ago. And um, I think one of the main reasons for creating that position, and, and it's it's a contra contractually bargained for position. It's in the the United Administrators of Oakland contract with Oakland Unified. And uh, what the, uh, part of the purpose is to make sure that the principal voice reaches um, the central office and some of the, uh, the executive um, uh, cabinet members. So, um, so I think that's, that, that's the spirit of it. And over the last uh, two years, as the 
four of us, there may have been five of us uh, have been uh, executive principals. It's gone through a few different iterations and we've tried to figure out what's the right role for the executive principal. The role isn't really spelled out in the contract. It's just this notion that a certain number, uh, I don't even know if there's a number actually of, of principals named, but there's going to be a handful of, of principals that are executive principals with a stipend um, helping out uh, 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 central staff to, to think through certain issues. So you're like a like a advisory group. Yeah, we were we were utilized in that way. Yeah, there'd be certain departments that came to speak to us and ask asked us what uh, what our opinion was on calendaring or uh, you know uh, I can't think of what like, else we like, talked about, but like start and end dates of the school year or something like that by calendaring. I I don't know uh, things like the the assessment calendar. Okay. Uh, I think that was one thing, but uh, the start and end date of the school year that wasn't a, a topic that okay. that came to no, us. I was just trying to understand what you meant by calendaring, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, if you weren't termed out, would you keep doing it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And uh, do you know why there's a term limit on it? I'm just wondering why that was kind of constructed as part of the role. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I wasn't there for the negotiations, but I imagine just like in, in other politics, term limits just to give other people a chance to to go in there and keep it fresh. I, I'm just speculating. I don't know. And, and yeah. did you have a responsibility to like, so you went and met with some departments. Did you also convene larger groups of principals? No. Um, our other charge was to mentor um, newer principals. And so that was part of, of what we did. Um, other than that, uh, what else did we do? Um, I think those were the two main functions. Yeah. They're changing it this year, though. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not so much us uh, uh, or the executive principals being available for any department to come to and just kind of get uh, get some time with us. Now, the executive principals, from, from what I last heard, they um, are going to pick a certain area of work, let's say the budget, and um, they'll, they'll go deep. And so they'll just stay with that one topic the whole, the whole time. And so the executive principals, we did talk, and that seemed to be something that was more of, a, um, uh, of the most recent iteration of, of this role. Do you think principal central office communication is is going well these days like this must not be the only way that that folks mm -hmm. connect you know across those levels i mean mm -hmm. how is how was that looking like in oakland unified these days how are you experiencing it anyway so principal central office communication um i mean for me personally it's i think it's going fine it's going great um but i've been around now for eight years and so the benefit of that and being a principal uh, in, in the same system for that long is you know who to go to for which thing. And so communication is great because I know exactly who to email. Um, if I were, and but when I was a new principal, it was difficult. Yes, it was frustrating because the, uh, you know, it's, it's a big organization. So people come and go and the org chart is not dynamic. And so you don't know when people come and go. And we don't have the job descriptions for everybody, and so we don't know who's in charge of what. So um, I know that uh, they're, they're, that part's improving with our district, and it's great. Um, and the, uh, it seems like the network superintendents that we have now that um, are directly um, supervising the principals are incredibly um, communicative and pretty transparent with the principals. And so uh, for me, in, in, our, in the middle school uh, network, it feels like the principals are in agreement that that our supervisor Mark Triplett's great, and we have great communication. So you know, my personal experience is that it's going pretty well now. 
That's great. Um, over your time in OUSD, what do you think are some of the most obvious and impactful changes you've seen, um, you know, in your time? Yeah. Yeah. I think the main thing for me, and yeah, I can answer this so quickly because I, I feel like the big game changer is the SPF. So talk so, us through it. Yep. What is it? Okay. So, which now that I say that, it actually doesn't exist anymore yeah. in its form, <laughs> right? Say. Right, right. But Go the, the concept. The story, right, right. So the school performance framework. Um, uh, so the school performance framework was this um, this concept where there's a set of indicators, measurable indicators, um, uh, reading, writing, suspensions, chronic absence, that um, uh, was introduced maybe, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago. And whereas it's not, in my opinion, a comprehensive set of measures, it may not even be the right set of measures. However, just the concept of it, of having some, uh, uh, some set of measures that um, now become apples to apples from school to school, um, uh, I feel like was a game changer because, um, to me, if you don't define where you're going, then you don't know if you're getting there or not. So one example that, that, that I've, I've talked to people about is like, hey, let's say we say, let's go on a vacation. And the three of us want to go on vacation. And, and you two are thinking about going to New York. Well, I didn't know that. And for me, I'm planning uh, a trip to, to Vegas. And now I'm mad because, uh, you know, we're going to New York. Or you guys are like, well, why'd you waste time planning a trip to Vegas? We need to know where we're going. And, uh, and then we can come up with strategies to get there. So what you measure is what gets done. So for me, I'm pretty concrete in that way. Um, m maybe too much in some ways. And I'm all about uh, quantitative and qualitative data as well. All I'm saying is um, we should define what, uh, what a successful school and a successful district um, uh, looks like, sounds like, feels like. And so the SPF, I feel like, did that. Now, right, the end of the story or this part of the story is that with the new California dashboard that is replacing um, the SPF, but it's really more of like an evolution of the SPF growing into um, a more statewide uh, set of measures, which, again, I don't know if those measures are the right ones, but the concept of it, the, the, the fact that we're putting this, this concept in motion, I think is going to be great for, uh, for everybody. So is it your understanding... So OUSD is choosing to kind of sunset SPF because the state is stepping up and will have good enough dashboards that kind of get at the same thing. So there's like it would be duplicative. Is that kind of or it wouldn't be or the added value of the S of, a, of the robust SPF, SPF might not be worth the, the investment in it given other priorities or just wondering. Do you know well, did they give any insight into other was it just as simple as oh the state's doing it now so we don't have to do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, that mm, I don't know if it's exactly the way you phrased it uh, uh, right then, but it's probably something like uh, it's going to be a state mandate. And I would say about 80% of the SPF and the California dashboard overlapped anyways, like the, uh, the indicators. And so it's just an evolution. So, and so, yeah, why, why do two when most of it's the same? So we'll just go with the California dashboard. So have you had a chance to study the Roosevelt numbers on the state dashboard? Uh, we have, let me think here, for some of the indicators, we have, um, yeah, actually, no, actually all of them we have, yeah, for the recent data, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, so even before figuring out, what, what, 
my understanding is that if you you know if a, a listener goes and looks up Roosevelt right now, uh huh, what are they looking at? Like what time period do you know? Like are they looking at how you're doing? Can they see how Roosevelt like is performing right now in September 2017? Is it last year? Is it the year before? Do you know? Yeah, I believe it's gonna be last spring. So how how Roosevelt was doing up until just at the end of last year? Of last year, okay, right. That's that's the snapshot that they'll use. And just su- super quick, where where would listeners um, go to find the dashboard? I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Like, we do you have it like bookmarked on your browser, so you just like click the same link every time? No. no what I do is, uh, yeah, it's totally inefficient. But I'll just look up California Department of Education, click around a bunch of places because that website is is just kind of a morass of words, and somehow I'll kind of kind of land on it, and so. Um, I'm sure there's a really efficient way, and I just haven't thought of it. I'm sure on, on the OUSD website, there's probably a couple ways to, to get there quickly. I don't know. Okay. Okay. So well, you could probably, probably Google California public dashboard. Five by five. Five by five right. reports. Right. That kind of right. thing. Okay. Yeah. That five by five thing is really interesting, too. I'm, I'm in- curious how you guys know about that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I mean, I I have been looking at five by five reports recently. Uh-huh. Distance from Met. Distance from Met. Distance from uh-huh. me. Yeah. All yeah. that good yeah. stuff. Now we're going to risk getting too wonky, and uh, people are going to turn off right now. It it might be helpful, listener, if you pull up a colorful 5x5 report while we talk about this. But we we, we don't have to go too deep into it, but I'm just wondering, what do you you think? When you look at those 5x5 reports, and they've got these, you know, each school has one for four or five different indicators, and they have all these colors on them, and there's, there's multiple ways to be blue on an indicator, blue is the best and there's multiple ways to be green and there's multiple ways to get to yellow based on your combination of you know how you did versus how you did compared to the prior year mm-hmm. you know even th- what i just said right there was a lot right listeners yeah, listeners <laughs> right and i think i said that accurately but it was still a lot so yeah. when you look at these and you've been in the game for a while is it useful is it actionable is it meaningful can you have mm-hmm. conversations with your stakeholders about them and will, mm-hmm. it, will it do what you think it needs to do? Yeah. So somewhat actionable. Like, I don't know. I, I say somewhat because when you get one uh, data point once a year, I mean, how actionable is that? So so it's, it's, it's more of an autopsy. It kind of tells you what, what happened in the past. You could speculate and try and make some changes in the future. But in terms of actionable, when I think of actionable, I feel like, it's 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 data that you get way more frequently. Like something that I get once every week or two weeks is actionable because I look at it, say sorry, formative, sure, yeah, and I, I can make some changes and see if it's made uh, had any sort of impact and then try again in two weeks. So um, you know it could be, depending on what data you're collecting, it's one week, two weeks, a month, six weeks, I don't know. But once a, a year, kind of hard to to say that it's 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 really that actionable. Um, the the big thing with with the five by five um uh chart is that it measures growth so um in in previous iterations of state tests and and including this one they're going to look at proficiency they want to know how proficient what percentage of your students uh, are proficient in reading or in math and so yeah i mean that's 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 an important interesting uh number but um very easily gameable so let's say I wanted my proficiency levels to rise. Well, let me just go recruit students who are already proficient uh, from the elementary schools, and we don't have to do that much better on the teaching and learning, and boom, our, uh, our proficiency level went up, and I look, I'm looking great, and I'm going to get some awards. 
so, for having meaning, a great school. You think there are ways to show improvement without actually changing anything pedagogically in the classrooms? So what, yeah, in the old Kid, regime. And even in the new one, yeah. Unless unless you look carefully at uh, at the distance from Met, uh, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about in a second. I'm just saying that there's a danger that uh, uh, so what you measure is what gets done, and if you're measuring um, uh, how, what percentage of your students are proficient, and you're being held accountable to that, and you're getting you know accolades and celebrations based on that number, or you're getting criticized based on that number, someone with uh, you know. Some unscrupulous person could go along and just have other strategies that have nothing to do with students learning, and you could game that number. Do, do, and is is I'm not asking you to name names, but is is your oh I'll name names. Okay, you are, you are you are welcome to. I'm not I'm not necessarily yeah. asking you to. And your it sounds like what you're saying is, and this is going on in the district. Or no? Uh, no, but you know I'll just uh, point out a, a high profile example, Atlanta. You know about that from a few years ago where people were uh, uh, up to the superintendent. They were like, I don't know, like erasing test score bubbles and, and putting in different ones. And I think they went to prison. Some of them went to prison for that. Um, there was so much pressure on, on getting enough kids to be proficient that uh, they decided to game the system. They lost that, that, that game um, big time, and, and that's a problem. So um, – uh, as an alternative, for me, I feel like, and again, I might be wrong. This is just where I'm at now. Uh, for me, I like to look at growth. So if a, if a sixth grade student comes to, to my school reading at a second grade level, but uh, after three years, let's say they come in at a kindergarten level, and after three years of being with the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, they leave at a fifth grade level, but they've grown one, two, three, four, five levels by being with us, and they're going to catch up in high school, if they continue to, to, to have that accelerated level of growth, I think our teachers and our school community should celebrate that. But that student is not, quote unquote, proficient, and we wouldn't get recognized or any sort of credit for that. So to me, that makes the, the, the student feel bad, the family doesn't feel that great, staff feel you know, criticized and, and whatnot. So for me, it's really about growth. And to me, that's a much more uh, just and uh, uh, a socially conscious way of looking at education because we don't want just those kids who are about to become proficient for us to dump all these resources into them to make sure that number goes up. We want every student to grow, no matter where they come into our school um, uh, uh, in their proficiency levels. And so that's what we're trying to do is figure out how to personalize our, our school for every student so that every one of them grows um, in their academics. And, and so are you saying that you think these five-by-five five models... It's a step in the right step, direction. You know, step towards yeah. honoring that growth idea. Right. right. It's, it, it's better because uh, what it does is it looks at how far away in the aggregate, like your, your, the average of your whole school, how far they're away from being um, at grade level. Um, but it's still an average, and so it's going to leave um, students who are really behind. They're going to leave them in the dust, and they're, they're not really not going to be um, uh, given attention. So that's why we should look at every single student and have um, a personalized goal for every student. Now we're all held accountable, including the student, for moving and, and reaching those targets. And, and again, just to just to clarify for folks who may be hearing about this for the first time, the 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 five by five is part of the California state dashboards. Right. It's a right. state level initiative, and there ought to be one for any California any publicly public funded school. school. I think that it came out last spring. I, I guess you you think Cliff, you said that you thought that the data in the reports was about last year, I, and uh, it could be. Yeah. I don't know. It might. I think it's either 
I think the data in there is either about last year or the prior. Yeah, year. no. Well, right. So this is where um, the systems are still trying to get get worked out because it says when you look at that five by five uh, web page now, it says that it's from spring 2017, but actually it's from spring 2016. So that caused some confusion for us for a little while, but that's okay. That's what's happening so, right oh, now. The report was was like generated in 2017, so they said spring 2017, but the data within it, like the kids took the tests in spring 16. That that yeah. So the way you explain it might be right. I don't okay. know about the generated and why it says okay. spring 2017, but that data is from uh, spring 2016. Yeah. And is and is this kind of tool something that you're encouraging your families? Uh, your 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 teachers your community to to become familiar with to to study um no, no. okay <laughs> not really i mean i feel like it's too high level um so my son like i i guess i'm interested kind of in how my son's school is doing as a whole and um you know and this is me being a principal of a of a fellow school but uh, for me as a parent i'm much more interested in knowing how my son's doing and so, um, so I'm sure most families, and there's going to be some wonky policy types that are going to be interested, or you know, people who um, uh, who are interested in, in 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 politics and whatnot. But uh, for most families and students, I, I imagine that they just want to know how's my kid doing, how am I doing, and and what do I need to do to to improve. One thing I want to say about indicators, though, is um, so this California dashboard. Like I said, I'm not sure that these are the right indicators, and there's going to be lots of iteration and discussions on them. But internally at Roosevelt, what we've done is had epic discussions on what we feel like is um, the right set of indicators to define success. And so we actually uh, bucket, we have three buckets of uh, indicators. One is a strong academic foundation. I mean, we are a school, and so we want the students to be better readers, writers, critical thinkers, mathematicians, scientists, historians. But we also um, uh, are looking at 21st century skills. That's the second bucket is 21st century skills. And I already said critical thinking under strong academic foundation, but that actually falls under the uh, 21st century skills. Creativity, critical thinking, collaboration. And then the third bucket is um, being a, uh, uh, having a, a strong community ethic. And so we feel like each one of these buckets, each three are just as important as the other. So it's academics, 21st century skills, and having a strong community ethic. So we feel like, and so each of these buckets has a set of indicators under them. And we feel like if we can deliver on these indicators, we'll feel like we are doing a good job fulfilling our mission, which is to create, uh, uh, to have, uh, have every student be empowered to be creative community leaders. That's our mission. So under that community ethic bucket, yep. for example, can you, can you let like what, what's the indic what are some of those indicator examples or are you are yeah. you already at the point where you're like measuring something uh -huh. about the student population and whether or not they are leaving roosevelt with a community ethic or not right so that that last bucket's a little different it's not really about has has students have students mastered being right. uh, uh, a good community member that one is more about um, how many experiences they've had to um to improve their community so right now it's still in concept form but the way it's going to look um maybe as early as say two years from now is that students would engage in um at least three service learning projects um, and if we're really good at it it's going to be a service learning project that each student has selected on their own they engage in, uh, and and design and plan and implement that project and then they'll reflect on it. So not, they're not just doing the thing, but they're reflecting 
um, uh, uh, in a written piece. And questions might look like, how has this changed you? And so we want to create conditions where students are reflecting and getting out of this uh, uh, American um, kind of capitalist, kind of your way, right away, you know, apps that are customizable for you and be like, yeah, it's not just about you. You know, the reason why we have school is so that we, each of us, um, are good citizens and we help each other. And so uh, we're trying to combat some of the um, kind of the prevailing culture uh, that's, that's in our country. And uh, so hopefully they'll develop a community ethic because they have engaged in, in nine, if they're with us from sixth through eighth grade, nine service learning projects and, uh, and have had a chance to reflect on them. Now those written pieces can double as evidence of student work on, on how well they're writing. So that's a bonus as well. But that's really right now the current iteration of our uh, thinking around the, the community ethic. Let's... Um Let's turn, since we're kind of talking about Roosevelt, let's go a little bit deeper and we'll, we'll go into specifics of Roosevelt. We have a few, we have a few more questions about just principalship in general we might get back to. We, yeah. Who knows, maybe not. So yeah. um, at Roosevelt Middle School, what's the, what's the most unique aspect of Roosevelt's model? Right. So the most unique aspect. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, because uh, that question requires me to think about other schools and kind of how we compare to others. So I don't know. Um, how would, how so would much innovation you talk happening? To a family you know? Yeah. About okay. Helping them decide if Roosevelt was the right school for their child. Yeah. Um, okay. So all right, that helps. So um, the way we've designed our school, uh, one of the ways that we've uh, kind of structured the work that we do. Um, not only do we have these three outcomes, but we actually have three learner-centered strategies, and this came out of this redesign work that we did that, Greg, you helped us with, uh, and uh, your work with the uh, Next Generation Learning Challenges Network. Um, and so through that process of, of redesigning our school, um, we have these three learner-centered strategies. Uh, one of them is personalized learning. It's kind of all the rage now, and uh, we're on it, trying to figure it out. Um, the other one is uh, addressing the whole child, so not just the head, but also the emotions, uh, um, and the heart, and, and, and the body as well, so the whole child. And uh, the third thing is real-world application. So when I talk to parents, I, I make sure that they know that it's not just about learning, but it's, it's personalized learning. We're going to really know your child and, and craft an educational program that meets their needs. Um, but it's also uh, uh, about um, not just, again, not just the head, but, but the heart. We want to make sure your, your child is fulfilled and happy, feeling welcomed, feeling seen, not just by uh, their teachers, but by all adults at the school and their peers. Um, and then, uh, again, it's about real-world application where it's not just, I, I, I give this example of, uh, you know, seeing a, a butterfly in a book, like a picture of a butterfly in a book is not as good as seeing, say, a video of, uh, 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 of a butterfly on YouTube, but those two are not nearly as good as actually being out in a forest and seeing a butterfly and, uh, and then talking about it. So um, for us, we are really trying to emphasize um, field trips and uh, not just bringing real-world examples into the classroom, but getting the kids out of the box, like literally out of that box and uh, outside in, into the world. We're taking uh, uh, maybe about a dozen kids this weekend rafting, and uh, we've been doing this every year for the last maybe two or three years, um, river rafting. Um, we're going camping uh, in, a, in a few weeks, and these are all staff members that are putting these trips together and 
and taking kids out. Talk a little bit more about personalized learning. It's, it's, I think we're at cliche status. Yeah. 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 Um, but for, for you in your school, how, mm -hmm. how are you making sense of it? What is it, what does it concretely look like today? Mm -hmm. and where, where do you imagine it going? Yeah, so one concrete example for us, uh, we have this math program that we are implementing. It's called Teach to One by uh, this company called New Classrooms. And uh, we are really excited about the concept of Teach to One. And the implementation also looks great. Um, uh, briefly, what it is, is that um, students, um, they take a quick assessment at the end of each day. And then uh, and it's on a, a Chromebook, on a computer. And then this uh, kind of supercomputer tabulates where the students are at. And uh, the next day re-shuffles um, them into different groups based on uh, kind of the next thing that that particular student needs and puts them with other kids who uh, may also need uh, that, uh, that help. Now, some, somebody immediately is going to be like, well, that's tracking. And uh, it's actually not tracking. Tracking is where you say these kids, these students are going to be in a class and they're going to be in that class the whole year. This is uh, where you say, actually, it, some students are really good at these skills and still need work on other skills. These other students are actually really good at some other skills and not so good at these other skills. And what you do is you are constantly moving kids um, uh, between lanes and um, having them regroup with other kids who, in a tracking uh, system, some of the students may never see each other because some kids would be honors kids and other students would be remedial kids. We don't do that. They're all together, and sometimes the students who would have been labeled that way will see each other, and sometimes they don't. So um, to us, that's an example of personalizing the learning where it gets down to where the students are um, for them individually. And... Uh, uh, and we're trying to figure out how to get all students to grow. Again, this is really the name of the game for us is growth um, and accelerating if they're really behind so that they can catch up and, and be on grade level and be able to navigate this uh, crazy world. Have you, um, have you had any experiences or observations around, and you've just described a technology solution, at least in part, right? Yeah, right, in part. right. Um, Technology solutions that provide that kind of personalized experience, but still fall short because personal. And this is—I don't mean this as a loaded question at all, um, but it may sound like one. But still fall short because the personalization that may matter most, maybe I'm looking for your take here, is whether the kid cares about the content in the first place and if we can get to the zpd great but not really so great if we're not mm -hmm. already making the connection for the child with the content i'm curious if that if that mm -hmm. rings true in your experience or not or just any comments you might have around that i mean that question makes me think of uh uh and maybe this is what you're getting at is will computers replace human teachers is, no, is that no, the question no, I, I mean you're welcome to go there that's yeah that's, yeah, yeah i'm i'm more interested in in getting your take on whether or not personalized learning to truly be successful uh -huh. needs to place the tech first that being able to serve the zpd the zone of proximal development getting the content uh -huh. at the right level for the right kid at any yeah. given moment is actually secondary to providing the child with reason to be intrinsically motivated 
to engage yeah. with the content in the first place because without that yeah. you've got nothing and again I'm not I'm not advancing that as a I'm banging my fist on the table making that claim I'm, I'm putting it out there for you to respond to yeah yeah so um, uh, for me technology is just one tool uh, a Chromebook is just like a book you know or it's it's uh, um, maybe a video that a kid could watch or, or field trip it's, it's one tool and um, so does the technology come before um, uh, uh, student interest in the in the subject no the students have to be uh, interested which is why actually that's why i thought you're going to the human thing um computers will never replace a human teacher and in fact that's why people pay 40 to fifty thousand dollars to send their kids to private school so that they could have a class size of like 12 to 1 because they know that having an actual human being a trained teacher somebody who knows um uh development young people uh, uh, psychology of, of, of young people and know their content well, that is irreplaceable. Um, you, can't, you can't shove a, a kid in front of a, a Chromebook and think they're going to learn nearly as much as having a skilled teacher uh, with them and being able to give them attention. So, um, so when we talk about personalized learning, I guess to me the ideal would be, yeah, I don't know, five students to, to one teacher, and uh, they are kind of walking around um, the world talking about what's out there and uh, every once in a while kind of you know, I guess trying to drill each other on the times tables, but more often it's more about saying, "All right, let's solve this problem." So these skills that you, that that you've you know maybe these facts you've memorized that should be like I don't know five percent of what they do, and then ninety five percent of it is let's talk about some real problems that are out there. Let's start with uh, climate change. Let's talk about racism. All right, students, let's figure out some solutions and try them out. So I don't know a five to one ratio that seems pretty good. Let's fund that. And, and so what's the, um, at Roosevelt, what's, mm -hmm. you've, you've given that very clear example of, of a tech-driven aspect of personalized learning. You've just spoken about the, the human side of personalized learning. What is, what is the human side of personalized learning look like at Roosevelt today, or, or where, mm -hmm. where are you taking it? Right. So we, so then, uh, like I was saying, the, the, the computer will tabulate kind of where the students are at. And then it gives that data to the teacher, which is when the magic really happens. Then these living, breathing uh, human beings then consider the data that they're given. They consider the actual students that they're working with. And then they can either override the, um, the groupings or override whatever lesson the, uh, the supercomputer has said um, based on the expertise of this trained professional. And then um, they work with the student. We've also invested more funds so that um, in those math classes, there are more adults in there, uh, and the student-to-adult uh, ratio is, um, is lower. It's higher, lower? So there's more adults per student than, uh, than in a traditional classroom. It's not 1 to 32. It's probably 1 to 1 to, it might be 1 to 15, if I'm doing my math right, if you just look at all the people that are there uh, and the students. Um, and they're working with the students in small groups. So at least in the math example, that's, uh, that's what we're doing there. In addition to that, we're partnering with um, uh, St. Mary's College. They're sending, I think this year, they're sending 30 um, students who are in one of their undergrad programs to come and help in our school. I think most of them are going to go into our humanities classes where they will work with students one-on-one -on -one or in small groups to, um, to read to them and have these critical thinking conversations that it's just, it'd be impossible to have 
um, that level of, of depth and personalization with one teacher and 34 students. I think, I think you said this earlier when you were talking about your, your own experience as a teacher in the five different schools and one of the lessons learned about just watching that the best teachers had formed tight relationships with students. And yeah. so I guess, you know, building off the last conversation, so how, so in, you're saying in math, the teachers get to work with kids in smaller groups and right. uh, then the humanities classes, you're having these extra undergrads mm -hmm. come in and so that maybe helps the teacher talk with kids. Are there other specific ways in the Roosevelt model mm -hmm. where your teachers are supported to create those very close and tight relationships with their students that you had seen in those, your own five schools? Yeah, I feel like we've taken steps forward. Are we? Have we created conditions where there is that super tight um, relationship? Uh, I think there's work that we can do there, uh, more work that we can do. But here's some steps that we've taken. So two, two in particular. One is that before we moved to our new um, bell schedule, which we launched last year, the average uh, general ed teacher um, uh, for math and uh, 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 English, social studies, and science had about 160 students. So I wouldn't say average. So on average, they had 150, but at most, they had about 160 in, in sixth grade, I'd say. So 160 students per teacher. So five classes of 32 students. It's going to be hard to get to know students uh, with that sort of ratio. It's still hard now, but we've cut that almost in half. And so I would say that on average, our classes, our, our, our class loads for those gen ed teachers, general ed teachers, is about 80. And so now they teach the students, fewer students, but twice as long uh, because we have blocks instead of periods. So that's part of it. So um, to cut down the number of students that they interact with um, has, been, uh, has been a step forward. Uh, the other thing we've launched is advisories. And so this is also kind of a, a big thing right now um, in Oakland, maybe um, around our country. But for us, we have, this might be our third year in advisories, and we've tried different uh, iterations of it. But the way it looks now is that there's about between 16 to maybe 19 students per advisor. Um, I have a, an advisory myself, and uh, we see the students twice a week for, uh, for 35 minutes. And uh, uh, we're continually iterating on what the advisory uh, does. But right now it looks like um, talking to each student about their, their grades, um, any struggles that they're, they're having. Um, we uh, do what we call gatherings which are kind of socio-emotional uh, ways to connect with kids, little games, um, uh, and we contact parents. And so the parents know that their advisor uh, is one point of contact that they can, uh, they can call. So those are two concrete examples of how we've put systematic things in place or systemic things in place based on our redesign um, to move towards personalization. You also mentioned earlier that, you know, with the with your staff and the folks who are working hard in the cafeteria that you had brought them together and you had leveraged the design thinking process as adults to kind of problem yeah. solve some stuff. Is that part of, is that, would students leverage the design thinking process in classes? Is that also a part of how the model works? Or, and if so, like, say more, what, what does it look like? Yeah. I, you know, I wonder if design thinking also is starting to become kind of cliche. And so for us, right, so it's, I mean, it's a powerful thing. And um, we haven't quite figured out what, um, 
how it fits into our uh, into our school. Like I sometimes I think in addition to the personalized learning, uh, addressing the whole child and real world application, maybe design thinking is a fourth uh, student centered kind of learning pillar. Um, so because we do see it um, uh, weaving in and out of our of our school, uh, our we call it uh, instead of science, we have now renamed our science department to be um, we call it STED, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Design. And so uh, they intentionally work in design thinking to most, if not all, of their units with the students. So that's there. Um, and we also have different projects that we do. We did this thing called Hack the Halls, where we invited some. Uh, 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 David Clifford is this uh, uh, guy who's also starting a, uh, a school um, around design. Uh, he came and kind of consulted with us and um, helped us to to design different solutions for hallway movement. And we had students involved with that. So, yeah, I mean, we like design thinking, um, but because it's such a buzzword, we don't want it to become meaningless. Uh, so, uh, so you know, we haven't figured out how to officially make it part of our, um, of our school, but it does exist in, in, in various forms. Was that the question? All right. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, I just, you had referenced using it as an adult, and it is out there in the oh, world. Right. So I was just wondering, mm-hmm. like, is it something that students also get a to get to learn about as a process and practice. So it sounds like through the STED class is a yes. way, and then there was this kind of, some students had this hack the halls mm-hmm. experience. Oh, right. Oh, and here you go. So n- thank you for, for kind of yeah reiterating that. So then the other ways, we have a computer science class where students are now designing their own uh, programs or coding different video games. We also have a maker and design class. We call it the Create Studio. And um, uh, most of the students can experience that elective as well. And that's where they're designing things like birdhouses and then uh, actually building it. And the idea, and it's still kind of in a, a, a kind of a, a rough um, kind of nascent form of how it all fits in, which is if students learn how to use the design process in very tangible concrete ways like building a birdhouse or or coding and building a video game or uh, doing a science project using the design thinking process, if we can help the students um, uh, kind of adopt that way of thinking, the hope is that then they'll apply that to things that are a little bit more esoteric, a little less concrete, like how do you design a solution to white supremacy, you know, or like, you know, or like, uh, um, or, uh, 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 or global warming, uh, climate change. So that's the leap that we hope we can help our students to make, which then also is part of our mission to empower students to be creative community leaders. So that's the connection we're trying to make. I'm not saying we're there yet, but we're doing it, making progress. Fantastic. And so, so under, understanding that you're, you're saying you're not there yet, are, are you seeing any early indicators that the the kids are on their way to to realizing that vision of the school? Yes, one. I think one indicator. So uh, uh, the concept of community is just big for us, and you know people define community in different ways. But uh, for us, I'm I'm hoping that what happens with our our young people is that they experience. They have a great. Roosevelt experience and that this I mean I don't know dare I call it a utopia I mean I don't know like we're hoping to get as close to that as possible where it's like 
not where everything's perfect, but it's it's a well-functioning kind of mini society, a, a microcosm, which then if the students, uh, when the students leave us, it'd be great if 20 years down the line uh, or even 15, 10 years down the line when they're in college or 15 years when they're going to the work world, they say, you know what, man, the world is, it, world is really hard, but I really enjoy uh, enjoyed my middle school experience. And I can think back to how awesome it was at Roosevelt. And I want to build a world that makes me feel like the way I did when I was in middle school. So, um, so to that end, uh, I feel like um, what we're doing now is building a, uh, a community where it feels safe and students are, are seen. Again, not quite there yet. And we've hosted conferences on schools that build communities because we've been recognized in the last couple of years as a place where it's pretty dang positive when you come onto campus. Um, uh, so I think that sort of uh, um, feel uh, um, and for the students to come and experience that is going to give them um, this sense of, okay, what does it mean to be a creative community leader? We want to build a community that feels like this and, uh, and hopefully you do that as young adults and adults when you go out into the into the world got it and so if, if other um if other oakland educators or or interested parties wanted to to reach out to you to to learn a little bit more about how you've you've done what you've done and and what the what the plan looks like going forward is that something that roosevelt has bandwidth for or or n not necessarily i'm 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 looking to ensure that folks who may be listening who are trying to do what what you're doing if, if mm -hmm. they could look to you for support or that's just not a place where Roosevelt is right now. Yeah, I'm pausing because um, so this past year uh, we had lots of visitors for, for just uh, a various number of reasons. TTO is interesting. And again, no, well, so, so TTO is interesting, the math program. Um, we've done some attendance work that um, has, we've had some, ex some success and so people have come to visit. So, do we want to host tours every day? No. <laughs> Do we want to host tours four times a month? No. Um, maybe once a month? Yeah, come visit. Um, if they want to email me, sure. Yeah, let's talk. Um, I think I th I actually think that school tours are really important. And actually, Greg, you uh, kind of put me on this um, uh, this path of really valuing actually going to other school sites and seeing what they're doing and then having like a, a structured way to talk to, to the people that work there. And so, yes, definitely welcome visitors and we love going to visit other schools. It just has to be a balance. So that's, that's my hesitation. Definitely my hesitation, but, but yeah. You don't have unlimited capacity. You're an, you were an executive principal. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. How, uh, sounds like, there's been a few changes at Roosevelt under your leadership. I think is that fair to say, like that the Roosevelt you experienced in 2017 is not exactly the same as it was when you took over. I mean, every year it changes, and I think the it's it's always been an evolution. And even before I got there, there was great stuff happening, and we were able to stand on the shoulders of the folks that were there before. So to me, it just feels like I don't know. It's been progress for the last decade uh, plus. How do you how do you manage that for students, for teachers, for families? Just those expectations around being in a a, a changing school or, yeah. or do, do do you think teachers and students experience it as a changing school i think the people that have been around and we have uh, a good number of veterans that, that are at roosevelt that even predate me coming eight years ago and, and they would say that there's been changes and folks that 
came on board after that, they'll say, yeah, there's, there's, there's change. And in fact, there was a time when there was um, kind of tongue-in-cheek. They, um, someone had done a skit, uh, not mocking me, that's not the right word, but just kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, elbowing you a little bit inside? Or I guess or roasting a little bit about how um, we're always trying to do something, or I'm always trying to do something new. And, uh, uh, and that's okay. You know, I'm okay with that. If that's, if that's my caricature, that's okay. Um, and, uh, and over the years, we've settled down from just trying things and kind of just, uh, just grasping and, and taking little stabs at the dark to try and find what works. So I think that's where we're at is through uh, uh, data being um, a little bit more intentional about what we try out and why. So, um, so I think the staff get that. And, and I think uh, for the families... I'm not sure the families necessarily experience um, the change um, much more than saying, uh, you know, I went to Roosevelt, you know, 20 years ago, and uh, the Roosevelt that I see now is so different, and I'm so excited about the changes that have happened, and uh, I'm happy to send my kid here. So I'm happy for that. And 550, that's the biggest you've been in in a year or two, right? Oh, when I first came we were at about 700 okay. and then every year there's like a, a, a precipitous drop and then this is the first year i think um well for sure this year is the first year that we hit our enrollment uh projection numbers before school started so every year we're scrambling wondering if we're going to hit our enrollment and whether we need to uh to uh, lay off some staff members this year was the first year that we hit those numbers and then some we're actually 50 students over our projected numbers and, uh, and it's an increase from last year. So we feel uh, in terms of the overall kind of total number of students. So it feels great. Yeah, I'm hoping that this isn't just an anomaly, but hopefully it's a tipping point and, and a turning the, point. The for, word is uh, getting out about Roosevelt. I hope so. Yes, that's what I'm hoping. And the, the, the children and families who are attending Roosevelt, are, are they largely coming from the San Antonio? What's, what does the live go look like? Yeah, they are. They really are. Yeah, I think the bulk of the students from from Garfield and Franklin, uh, the fifth graders came to us, and uh, and we're very excited about that. Like our mission really is, and we don't want to to draw from 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 the hills or draw from you know other neighborhoods. I mean, people are welcome to come, but really, we're here to serve the students uh, and the families that are in the San Antonio district. Okay, um, do you have other Roosevelt questions? No, I was, I was, I was thinking we might ask um, Cliff just a couple of sort of reflective questions on his practice as as yeah. principal. Yeah. yeah, go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so even before, before that, um, uh, I, I don't think it's a it's a hard sell to position the principalship as arguably the most difficult role on the education spectrum. I'm sure folks sitting in different chairs would be able to make their own arguments, but um, the principalship sits in the middle <laughs> of a lot of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious, especially given that you're entering year, year eight at Roosevelt, are there things in your day that you do to prepare yourself, restore yourself, to, to do your work well? your community and, and if so what do those practices or routines look like routines yes okay um yeah this is yes this is a good question for me to reflect on because i i i read tons of of articles and books on productivity and uh, i just want to 
get the most out of my time. I, I'm 41 now. I only got how many more years do I have? 70. In this world, 75. 70. 70. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's too many. Um, so yeah. So I want to make sure that that I have as much impact as possible. So in terms of routines that um, help me and have impact. Um, I, I'm a, I'm an early morning person. I'm a kind of a pre-dawn person. And so, um, these days I, uh, uh, get up at around five and, uh, I read this one article, um, where it talked about if you can get one major thing done, like the first thing in the morning, just get that thing done before you check email, before all these little things start to creep in, um, then, then you'll feel great. It's true. And I, I don't get to it most, I, and I don't get to it every day, but most days I do. And I'll get up at five and I'll just think, what is the thing that stresses me out the most? That's what I'm going to work on right now. And uh, I'll spend 45 minutes, uh, you know, creating that agenda or trying to work out that, I don't know, that checklist or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that helps to, uh, to clear my mind. Um, I, I also try and go to inbox, not quite inbox zero. I'd like to. I'm trying to do that inbox zero every day. But I probably right now it's about inbox five. So I get down to about inbox five Strong. every day. Yeah, and, and it's so far so good. And uh, as the year progresses, it may not be that low, but, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm constantly checking email, getting it off, get, uh, out of my inbox, and it feels great. That also is great for clearing my mind. And um, a couple other practices, maybe um, I try and do my weekly newsletter at the end of the week on Friday before I go home, so that's not hanging over me. Uh, and then I try and exercise at least uh, once every other day. Got it. And what, what does that exercise look like? Are, are these are there shorter sessions, longer sessions, a mix? What, what kind of exercise do you like doing? Yeah, so time is always a, an issue, and what's nice is jogging is, is quick. So it's maybe a 25-minute jog or uh, uh, that seven-minute workout. I like that seven-minute workout. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, my, my daughter and I, are, we have a date for that later tonight. <laughs> I am noticeably silent on the exercise question. So you mentioned uh, working with your other principals and your manager, Mark. Mm -hmm. Mark was a principal as well in Oakland. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I love my colleagues. I, guess. That, I was with them today. They're great. So starting with that, keeping yep. that center. Yep. What do you think some of those folks in Central, Mark included, still might misunderstand about your role right now and the work you're doing right now as a principal? Hmm. Misunderstand? I mean, no one's going to know all the nuances of what I do. Uh, it's, you know, I know my, yeah, I know my community uh, better than anybody else. And so, so there's that. Um, but in terms of things that they might misunderstand, um, I think people don't, necessarily uh grasp this um like all the measures all the indicators like how we define success at our school like this whole the community ethic thing that i've mentioned i don't think people quite get it um i haven't really talked about it that much because it's still not that you know ready for 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 release but um but that is kind of an important part of our school in my mind and uh it'll it will be something that that they understand but at this point you know, and rightly so. I, I feel like the uh, again, what you measure is what gets done. Right now, our district is held accountable to those California dashboard measures, and so, yeah, rightly so. People are focused on that, and as these folks that are in 
the roles in the central office stay, and I hope they stay, and we continue to build, then we'll be able to get to a place where we can add other things that maybe n are not on the California dashboard, things like community ethic and that sort of thing. So I'm very hopeful. But, um, but yeah, that's probably one thing that they don't get yet through no fault of their own. They're lovely people. Shout out Mark Triplett. Yep, yep. We gotta have you on, Mark. Um, where do you think you need to improve the most as a principal? Nowhere. I'm the best. There it is. Next question. <laughs> yeah. Cliff just dropped his mic. <laughs> oh man, God, that's a hard question because there's so many areas. Yeah, you, um, just, you just suck at so many things. So you really no. Sorry. Pick, pick, I, you know, pick the one that you think is is most necessary, or the one that came you know, top of mind uh, immediately. Does, doesn't have to be the uh, you know the whole exhaustive list of things you might come up with. So how to improve how to improve as a principal? Um, what do I need to do? Let's see. Okay, so what comes to mind? Um, you know, I what comes to mind is is the people part, and uh, I mean I, I I feel like the people part is um, is really important and. As long as I feel like there are there's at least one staff member that is um, you know that I'm that I have some sort of conflict with there's more work to be done now compared to years past we're in a great space and in fact people might look at the level of quote-unquote conflict that I have with staff and say what are you talking about this is amazing this is just like day-to-day -day, you know just because you're a human they're a human yeah and I would prefer that we are as aligned as possible and uh, that that there's just like great uh, relationships between myself and the folks that I work with. And I feel like there's still um, some areas that I feel like there's work to be done between me and, and some folks. And do you, as, as you're, are you, inf is this response informed by collecting any data from how teachers or families or students might answer that question for you? I don't think so. This is really about like kind of uh, staff uh, uh, relations. Okay. Yeah. But but I mentioned that because uh, the people are really because after safety. So number one, my number one concern is safety as a principal is number one. Number two is people, and making sure that you have the right people on the bus, that they're in the right seats, and that they're happy because fulfilled staff members do their best work. And so that's why I go there when you ask me that question is, is I always want to do work there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, um, this almost takes us almost full circle, but w can you identify the, the single biggest improvement in your practice that, le that led to outsized results and outsized return on, on the, the realization of that improvement? in your practice i think yeah so an improvement in my practice has probably been the ability to identify um good people and find ways to coax them to come on board yeah the people that i feel like are on uh the the team at roosevelt whether it's from uh, classroom teachers to to leadership to some of the strategic thinkers I feel like I feel like for every one of them that's there I can't think of one that's that for them this isn't true that I have had a conversation or multiple conversations 
um, trying to convince them to, to come on board and why they would want to choose us over some other hot school or some innovative school. And uh, every second has been worth it for all the people that we convinced to come on board. So I think that practice has been huge. Okay. This is awesome. Um, I want to ask, Randy, I want to ask our listener questions yeah. also about yeah. that final topic. Can we go there? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we had a couple of listeners pipe in uh, on social media. Thank you, listeners. Uh, and they offered us some questions for you. Oh, this is live? No. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, we had... We, had, we, had, uh, we would have told you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprise. We have, uh, we have recorded one that uh, was also live. Charles. So, yeah. Uh, so, Charles. reasonable reasonable thought. But, uh, okay. no, just uh, in the last week or so okay. before recording this. So, folks want to know, uh, what do you feel... What does innovation feel like in 2042... And how are you building the innovators now that we're going to need for that for that vision of 2042? Man, 2042, it's going to feel the same as it feels now, as it felt in 1842. It's just, here's a problem, and let's get with other people who you know, are solution-oriented, and let's solve this thing. It's going to feel the same. All right. You want to ask the other listener question? Uh, yeah. So the other, uh, the other question... Um, is what is the most profound lesson your your students your kids have taught you this week this week the most profound lesson that the students and young people have taught me this week hmm um the importance of balancing structure with respecting individuality without structure uh, a school can fall apart students will run around they'll you know have conflict with each other uh, and if you have too much structure now you've built this awful uh, robotic civilization and so uh, you know, every student yearns to be different, yearns to be themselves, yearns to be uh, individual, and you have to respect that, whether it's um, uh, uh, calling them by the preferred pronoun or respecting what they wear or whatever. And, you know, we don't have it perfect. We have some rules, like you got to take your hat off and, and that sort of thing. And But we're always reiterating, like, why we have these rules and how we strike that balance between structure and individuality. So before we go into the five-ish questions, I, I think you are connected to, this is definitely off topic, but to Oakland's The New Parkway? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you just share, like, what's your connection to how, to, to The New Parkway? Yeah. So um, Moses uh, Caesar, he's, he's, he's the, the man that kind of revived it from, from the old parkway. They're not really even connected to the old parkway, the new parkway, except uh, by, in concept and by name. And so Moses knew my partner, um, Lindsay, when they did this program called uh, Amigos de los Americas, I think. And it was uh, a program, kind of an exchange program, where young people from uh, the United States would um, go to other countries um, and, uh, and do projects, uh, um, service learning, I guess. So um, we've known him for years, and he had this idea to revive the uh, new parkway uh, concept. And so we helped him uh, uh, name the new parkway. We were at his house. We helped him to name it. My name wasn't chosen, the one that I suggested. You're, what was uh, the name? 
Oh gosh, what was it? I think uh, I don't even remember. Um, I can't remember. I, I, it's I'm funny sure it was something very. I can't fathom it being called anything but the new Parkway. <laughs> right. I love that yeah. you had a whole dinner conversation to come up with the yeah. new Parkway. The new, yeah, exactly. At the end of it, that's that's what he came up with. Yeah. Anyway, so there was that, and then so, um, so yeah, and so I sat on the um, uh, the oversight committee for a year or so, and that's about it. Yeah. Okay. I was. I guess I was wondering because you don't find a lot of Oakland principals who have like kind of side gigs. Well, maybe you do. Oh maybe yeah. You do. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to ask more of them. But um, was there anything? Have you? Have there been any connections for you to make between Roosevelt and Roosevelt Kids and the new Parkway and just getting a new? venture off the ground in the city while you're also kind of in some ways getting off this this new middle school experience off the ground in Oakland as well I mean we've had some staff meetings there and using the space so that's been that's been fun um the new parkway has this cool thing on Wednesday nights called Karma Cinema where what they'll do is every um week I think it's every week maybe once a month but I believe it's every week they have um they have a different nonprofit that they uh, will sponsor, and then uh, a portion of the proceeds go to that that uh, um, that um, that organization, and and that organization gets to actually speak to um, the audience before the movie starts, and so um, we'll probably do one of those for Roosevelt. Assume we haven't yet, um, but uh, but that's probably on the books for us uh, very soon as well. I was uh, I was kind of thinking you were going to say maybe maybe you still can say that. The new Parkway has a has a flat top grill, and and it's a it's an opportunity for you to practice, practice your, your short your short order. Oh, oh. yeah. Is there, is there a flat top there? They uh they may. I haven't been in the kitchen, but um but yeah no it's that's true. They do have a kitchen there. Maybe they'll let me cook. Probably not though. Probably Seems not. Like they should. Yeah, I don't know if my skills are quite uh, quite Growth up to, to par. Yeah, that's right. But that's right. Not <laughs> yet. Not <laughs> yet. All right. Randy, you want to ask Yeah, let's go into, uh, into the, the five questions. All right, I'm ready. Okay, so first question is, what is your most radical education idea? Okay, my most radical education idea. Um, all right, how about this? Um, let's see. Uh, retirees have book clubs with middle school students where they read books that are interesting to the students. The retirees may have more time on their hands, I'm just assuming, and the students uh, get the critical thinking conversations and mentorships they need. So it's like AmeriCorps for retired people. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. My father-in-law, he, he volunteers in a school now, in a, in a middle school uh, uh, in, in his town. He loves it. It's awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. Who do you consider to be the most innovative voice in education today and why? The most innovative voice? Uh, Greg Klein. Try again. Okay, um, who is the most innovative voice in education? Um, God, there's so many different people, uh, but in terms of who impacts me, in terms of innovation, it might be um, our instructional teacher leader, Shelly Gordon. Why? Because she's always, she's one of those people that is always trying to problem solve um, and just the way she models uh, looking at a problem and drawing other people into uh, collaboratively solving problems it's just amazing she's a master of, of running meetings and getting people to feel comfortable and share their ideas and then uh, uh, 
putting those ideas together in such a way that that uh, it seems like people feel like they've come up with that solution together, and they truly have, because of her facilitation. So, uh, I uh, I thought you might say Shelly, <laughs> which yeah. is awesome. And she's one of those people that I had to coax to to come back to us. She had lots of other options. Mm-hmm. I I'm wondering if you'll go here in this next question or fully reject the premise, which is what might that voice, Shelly, still get wrong? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. This might be a non-answer, but uh, when you experiment, you're going to get it wrong more times than, than not. And so, I don't know, is that a sideways, like, escaping your question, question, answer? But, like, so, you know, she's always trying stuff and, like, failing forward, and so she's getting a lot of stuff wrong. Um, so maybe that. Okay. Great. Yeah. Third question. If you were superintendent in OUSD, what's the first thing you would do and why? And is there anything within this, this hypothetical that, that might scare you a little bit? Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I'm, you know, when I think about this, there's, there's, there's not one thing. I don't know. Can I name more than one? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I guess the, the, the context for this answer will be like, you know, I don't know what it's like to be superintendent. I'm sure it's one of the hardest jobs ever. So I don't know. This is just me and from where I sit and uh, what I would say. So if I became superintendent today, um, first thing would be um, working with site leaders to create and implement, working with site leaders to create and implement a plan where uh, every site engages staff, parents, and students in, in uh, and their community to clearly and measurably define what success looks like for them. Because I feel like we talk about what successful schools look like. I don't, actually I'm pretty sure that most of the time uh, we're not talking about the same thing. And so um, I would really press school leaders to engage their communities to define what they think success means and so and looks like sounds like feels like so that's the first thing um second thing is i would appoint a chief operations officer um to make uh district operations more efficient um effective and cost effective i'm all about operations love operations i would hire a co i'd hire five of them just one just one (laughs) that's not cost effective um uh, I think, oh, then I would ask uh, each central department to demonstrate to me what their value add is toward student uh, uh, success. Um, and the last thing that would be the first thing that I do is um, I'd probably have uh, a regular lunch or dinner with key stakeholders, especially uh, leaders of the unions. And we, we probably should have framed that last one, Randy, as when, not if. Oh, not but if. We'll get there. Cliff, no, Cliff's no, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, um, down the road, down the road. You have 70 years, right? So you're good. 75 years. I'll uh, be 126. <laughs> I love it. What or who inspires you in Oakland to continue working in education? Yeah, th- my own two children. So um, so like we said, you know, Yuji, he's seven. Uh, he attends Melrose Leadership. Um, and uh, Tom was four, and he's going to attend an OUSD school next year when he's in kindergarten. So one of the few things that I have in my office that's up are these two uh, printouts, these signs that I have. One says, uh, would I want Yuji to attend Roosevelt today? And the other one says, would I want Tomu to attend Roosevelt today? 
And for me, um, this is a really helpful lens and uh, uh, to think about my, my own children. So if, if Roosevelt or any school in, in Oakland is not good enough for my kids, well, it's not good enough for anybody's kids. So having that lens is very visceral uh, and, and helpful for me to, to know what the standard is supposed to be. And so I'd encourage everyone to, uh, to use that, that lens for themselves. So they inspire me to keep going. Yeah. Last question. What do you get to see or experience that you wish everyone else could see or experience? We've kind of touched on this. Um, it's, uh, it's visiting other schools. So I think that if people could visit a well-resourced school, well-resourced school, an under-resourced school, um, a school in the hills, um, in the heartland, in the flatlands, um, uh, schools where students are learning a lot and are being successful and schools where they're not learning that much, I think it's important for uh, uh, legislators, um, other leaders, um, staff from different schools to get that perspective. Um, and, and actually, really everyone, voters uh, should see all of this too to get a full perspective of what we're doing with our uh, education system um, because if it's not functioning well, um, we're in trouble. Yeah, we're in trouble. Thanks for taking a couple hours to spend some time with us. We obviously know you're incredibly busy running a gigantic middle school in mm. Oakland. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much. This was very uh, stimulating and interesting. Uh, thanks so much, Cliff. All right. Well, um, that uh, that will wrap up uh, the, the chat. Greg and I are uh, going to cut away for a moment, but we'll be back real soon with some final notes. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you all for listening to Cliff Hong, principal at Roosevelt. We're just here to take just another moment to wrap up with uh, some closing thoughts, which is you can you can find Cliff if you want to engage with him. Um, Roosevelt Middle School is in the heart of Oakland. Uh, they're on as a school on Twitter at Roosevelt 510. Uh, you can also find Cliff on uh, Facebook as well. And their website is pretty up-to-date, ousd.org slash Roosevelt. You can learn a lot more there as well about the school and the work that's going on right now. You can find us. Uh, many of you have. We are at the GR Proj on Twitter. We're on Facebook, similarly so. Our website is thegrproject.com. And uh, if you are so inclined, you can head on over to patreon.com slash thegrproject as well and, and find us there with our digital tip jar. And keep an eye on our website, uh, thegrproject.com. We are constantly scheduling future guests and are always open to fielding uh, questions from you, for us, for our guests. We're open to hearing your suggestions for future guests as well. So please uh, don't be shy and, and reach out. And uh, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, we would love to work with you if you're interested in blogging about a particular episode. And this can be an episode that we've already recorded and released. Uh, this is also an opportunity for, if you are a teacher, your students to write about uh, what they've heard our guests speak about. There are, there are clearly highly relevant, complex, and compelling subjects here for, for both kids and adults in, in Oakland to engage with. So please know that we're here for you and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And as always, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud and, and the ratings and reviews and sharing there is, is great. Um, so please keep that up. We really, really thank you all for listening. It's, um, we're, we've learned a lot so far. We've got, uh, we've got a little more to, 
I've got lots more to learn, I would say, so on, on the production side, the technical side, the interviewing side, every aspect of this project. Uh, and so keep the feedback coming. You're helping us uh, make progress here. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back uh, soon enough with uh, another episode. Bye, everyone.